Well, as OJ mentioned, we are continuing in our series of the Minor Prophets, and this has been a rich and a wonderful series. I've been very, very uh, surprised, not surprised, but pleasantly surprised, I guess, just with uh, how much God has done through the series. And as he mentioned today, uh, we're learning from uh, the prophet Joel. And like many of these, uh, these uh, minor prophets, they, they live in a, a period of time that stretches a couple hundred years or more, uh, but they're speaking to the nation of Israel. And, and one thing seems to be common for all of the prophets in the time in which they're living. And that is that the people of God have drifted. They've kind of gotten stale or, or just they've forgotten about God. And, and they've stopped looking to him. They're going through the religious motions, mind you, but they're, they're no longer having their heart close to God. God called Abraham. And, and you'll remember he had his son Isaac and then Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 sons of Israel. And, and they grew in their relationship with God and came to a crescendo under David and King Solomon. But then from there on, we have successive king after king after king that was leading Israel astray. And so they were no longer close with God relationally, so to speak, but they were more like a cultural practice, if you will. And this sort of trajectory is something that we should pay attention to because it can happen in our day and age as well, where we begin to just go through the motions and our heart is no longer connected deeply to God. What's interesting about God, as we've learned in this series, is that God is described as being jealous for his people. Now, when I hear the word jealousy, I don't know about you, but it, it has more negative connotations with it when I hear jealous. I think kind of a codependent relationship and, you know, that little thing going on and a little sniping going on with one another. Well, God, God's not codependent. Uh, God is perfect and he's holy. And when he is jealous, it's a perfect, holy jealousness. And so what is it? Well, what it basically means is that God wants to be in relationship with you. And when our heart is stray, he longs for that. He wants that. He doesn't want to see us pursuing other gods. He wants us to pursue him. That's what he created us for. And so God's jealous towards us. The other thing that we know about God from the scriptures is that God loves us enough to bring pain into our lives in the form of discipline when necessary. My dad... Uh, told a story when we were kids. We grew up in Detroit, and my mom and dad were a little adventurous, and so uh, they went out and got skis in the real early 1970s. Fiberglass skis came out, and so they got some. And problem with Detroit, it's flat, so there's no place to really ski. But there was this one place called Pine Knob. It had one ski lift, kind of took you to the top of this little hill, and you'd ski down, get in line, kind of do it over and over again. Well, he tells a story where he got to the top of the ski lift, and there was um, a person coming off the ski lift after him that was clearly out of control, and they were careening towards one of those mesh fences. On the other side of this mesh fence was a 20, 30-foot drop-off. It would have been really serious. And so he kind of struggled to get over because he saw what was happening, and he kind of reached out and ended up knocking the person down. And the person looked up with their eyes really big and said, thank you, sir, thank you for knocking me down. Sometimes we're heading towards the cliff, God loves us enough to knock us on our backside, uh, to put us down out of love, 
out of a form of discipline. So Joel opens up by describing this form of discipline that God was bringing into the life of the people of God uh, at the time in which they were living. Uh, we're gonna show you verse four here, but I wanna read the first three verses as well in, in chapter one. It begins in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. This is a pretty big deal. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. My goodness, I didn't know there's all kinds of locusts like that. There was a locust plague that hit Israel during the time of Joel. And as the chapter continues, it goes on to describe the total devastation that is hitting Israel. Wiped out their food source, gone. And then it was followed up by a drought. There was no water. The people are starving, they're thirsty, and there's no C-130s from another part of the world that's not having a plague to fly the food in. They are desperate. This is a life or death deal. I can't even imagine what it would have been like. A plague of locusts is not something we've had to deal with here, uh, but it's a pretty terrifying thing, especially during this time uh, in history. Um, a plague of locusts literally has billions of insects in it. One of the largest ones ever was a thousand square miles of locusts, dark in the sun. Now to put that in perspective, the largest city in Africa is Cairo, and that's 400 square miles. Huge. And when they descend on a field, it is gone in an instant. A swarm of locusts can eat what 15 million people would eat in one day. Just wipes out their food source. It's gone. And so um, I've got some pictures here for you. Wait, wait a minute. Those are love bugs. <laughs> I figured that's the only thing we could relate to because we've never gone through a swarm of love. I don't know about you, but didn't we seem to have love bugs in biblical proportions this last time? I mean, it was a really bad, bad season, so we didn't take that down. But, but those were annoying, right? These were devastating. These came and wiped out the food source, and I, I, you can't even imagine it. So if you went through it and if you survived, you certainly would talk about it for generations. In chapter 1, verse 15, Joel equates this event, this thing that happened in history, as the day of the Lord. In other words, this is something God sent. This is a very key phrase in Joel. It's in all three chapters, the day of the Lord. It's also something that we see repeated throughout the scripture. In general, the day of the Lord means the day that God will bring judgment, the day of God's judgment. Here in chapter one, we see the locust plague is equated with God's judgment, the day of the Lord. In chapter two, he talks about another locust plague that is coming. This time it's serving as an analogy of the impending invasion of the Assyrian army. And God himself depicts himself as the head of that army. And he equates that event that's coming very, very soon as the day of the Lord. But in chapters three, we see it again, but this time he pivots and something very, very different is going on in the way that he is writing because he's no longer writing about something that just happened or something that's about to happen, but he sets his eyes on the distant future and begins to prophesy about the end of time, 
where God will bring ultimately this devastation and his destruction and his judgment in the ultimate day of the Lord. Now, when we read this and when we hear this, this plays right into a common view of God. I mean, locust plagues and judgment and people dying and God being angry with people's sin. And a lot of folks have a difficult time with this when we talk about this aspect of God, that he's a God of justice, a God of judgment. And it, it's hard because on the other hand, Joel turns around in chapter two, verse 13, and says, God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's full of loving kindness, and that he's willing to relent from sending calamity. And so we get these almost two extremes. There's this tension that people feel. How can God in the world be both? How is he a God of justice or judgment, but this God of gracious, compassionate love? So how do we reconcile this? Well, if you read the entirety of Scripture, what you see is an arc in Scripture that's very, very clear, that God is after our hearts. God longs for his creation. He's jealous for our hearts, for us to come back to him and be in relationship with him. He's passionate about it, and he relentlessly pursues the hearts of people. As long as there's breath in your lungs, God is pursuing your heart. This is what we know about him. He is gracious. You see, the problem is not him. The problem is you and I. The problem is us. We have a continual propensity to pull towards sin, to drift in our relationship with God, to forget him. So we are sinful people actually deserving of judgment. So the real question is, how in the world do we ever get to experience his gracious, compassionate love? Well, Joel, the good news, answers that question for us. And he tells us in doing so three things that he wants us to know about God. And so let's jump right in with the first one. This is what Joel wants us to know about God. God responds to a broken heart. God responds to a humble, broken, and contrite heart. This is what he says in chapter one, verse 13. Gird yourself with sackcloth. And lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as a destruction from the, old mind, from the Almighty. Joel's response to the discipline of God is to call the leaders and the people, the community of God's people, to come together and to lament. Lament. What's lament? It's not something that we talk about much in church these days. Um, and that's a shame, really. And so we get to go there this morning. The Bible is full of the examples of people practicing lament. We see it all throughout the Old Testament prophets. They uh, practiced lament. Uh, they personally did that. They often called the people of God to come and to pour out their hearts to God in lament. We see 65 of the 150 Psalms are actually Psalms of lament. 
We see Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is betrayed, spending a night in lament. And so this is replete throughout the scriptures, this practice of the people of God. In lament, we express our deep sorrow over our brokenness, over brokenness that exists in the community of God's people, over brokenness that exists in our world. In lament, we bring raw honesty, raw honesty with ourselves, raw honesty with God. We bring our confessions, we bring our questions, we even bring our complaints, things that we don't understand, things that are troubling to our soul. This is actually one of the most beautiful forms of worship in all of the scripture. It's the human soul laid bare before God, broken and contrite, sometimes confused, often in pain. It's in those seasons of life where we might be angry with God, where we can't figure him out. We're finite, he's infinite, and he blows our mind in his perplexity of just why isn't he acting the way I think he should act? Why is he different than what the scriptures seem to say? And so in lament, we wrestle with God. Oftentimes it goes beyond our words. It's just something down here, the cry of the soul that gets real before God and says, God, where are you? I don't understand. This is lament. It's our fight to believe God, a fight of faith, a fight to find answers to our soul's most deepest questions and pain. Some call this the dark night of the soul. And if you've ever gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. It's painful to go through, it's scary to go through, but in the end, it yields a depth of relationship with God that you can't even begin to understand. It's a great form of worship. So Joel calls the leaders and the people to get serious about doing heartfelt business with God. He continues this call to lament in chapter two. Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, tear your heart. The religious practice was to tear your garments, but God says, don't do that, rend your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Notice this is far more than a religious exercise. It's deeply heartfelt. It's the idea that we get real with God. I didn't know it at the time, but the first lament that I ever practiced was I was a junior in college. And uh, some of you have heard some of my story. I was in a family that had a lot of dysfunction. And part of our dysfunction was kind of a religious little hypocrisy going on. And that... Um, we would show up at church virtually every Sunday, but those two hours of the week, the family looked a lot different than the other 166 hours of the week. Let me just put it that way. So by the time that I got to college, um, I really was kind of heading this way. You know, I didn't want any more of the religious hypocrisy and I was gonna go find whatever it is my soul was looking for and I figured I could get that without God. And so I went after it. But like the story often uh, ends up when you try to find life and purpose and meaning without God, two and a half years, I was at rock bottom, face down in the proverbial mud, so to speak. And uh, this particular evening was one of the worst of my life. I partied in ways I had never partied in, uh, up to that point and haven't partied that way since. 
uh, ended up at a bar that evening, got in a confrontation with a guy, had a little glass in my hand, crushed a beer in his face. That was really powerful, right? And uh, ended up just tearing a big old gash in my finger. Still got the scar here today to prove it. And uh, I was bleeding pretty bad, so my buddy threw me in his car and we went over to the university hospital. Well, when I came out, he was gone. Uh, he was kind of tipsy, and so he didn't know why he was there. After about a half an hour, he forgot it was me. And so he jumped in his car and took off. It was a bitterly cold Michigan night, sub-zero temperature, two o'clock in the morning, and I have a two and a half mile walk back to the dorm. Uh, I got sobered up in a hurry, and I just felt like I was at the worst possible place I could be. I remember getting on my knees next to my bed in my dorm and just pouring out my soul. Not even so much the words as just a cry of a penitent sinner that just knew that I had offended God and that I was making a mess of my life and I needed him in ways that I couldn't even verbalize. And so my soul cried out. And you know what? Joel's right. God's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's full of kind love. And he's willing to relent from sending calamity and he offers a blessing instead. This is who God is. And Joel wants us to know what David said, a broken and contrite heart, God will never reject. He wants us to know what God said through the prophet Isaiah. He says, to this person I will look, to him who's humble, who's contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God responds to the broken heart. There's another thing that Joel wants us to know about God. Not only does he respond to a heart that is contrite and broken, God restores what the locusts have eaten. Listen to what he says in uh, verse 25 of chapter two. You can look at it in your bulletins. He says, then I will make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Now again, losing your food source is a really big deal. But we're talking about God here. God could send manna if he wants. He has unlimited God resources to do what he wants to do to meet this need. And he promises to restore what the locust has eaten. Now, I like to try to demonstrate this to my children when they were little. I'm not God, but when you're a dad, especially when they're little, you kind of represent him to them. So I, I would remember sometimes they'd lose a toy, or I have one scene in mind where we went out for ice cream, and one of my daughters was licking her ice cream, and the cone, ice cream wasn't in the cone very good, and plop, went to the, and she looked up at me, and her lips started quivering, and her eyes filled up with tears, and it was, oh, I just lost my ice cream, and daddy to the rescue, right? And he comes in, oh, don't worry about that. Daddy can get you two scoops. I can replace what you just lost, right? By the way, Jill and I just became grandparents uh, six months or six weeks ago. Really excited, little Tommy. And when this happens to Tommy and he licks his ice cream and it goes down, he's going to get three scoops. <laughs> all right. The locusts are going to show up in all of our lives. Life is hard. Life has its moments. We experience loss. We experience pain. We experience what life brings, and there's these seasons where it just doesn't make sense, where we feel the loss of what's going on in our world and in our own lives. And here's the kicker is sometimes the locust is us. We do it to ourselves. We make dumb choices, 
And we experience the consequences of those choices. And it feels like years are lost, years that can never be made up. And I want you to know this morning that what God said to Israel thousands of years ago, he says to you this morning, he can restore what the locusts have eaten. I've seen it so many times. I've experienced it. My mom and dad, the household I grew up in had a lot of dysfunction. Here's the good news. Is uh, halfway through their marriage, they were married 67 years. My dad turned to the Lord, came back to the Lord, and my mom came to Christ for the first time. And they began a journey together, a journey of healing, a journey of being transformed, and then to watch them grow in this newfound relationship that they had with God and with one another was just amazing. And the second half of their marriage was actually beautiful, and they ended up being two lovebirds when my dad passed at age 85. God's able to restore what the locusts have eaten. You know where that is in your life right now. I can't categorize all the areas and the possible scenarios of loss in your own life. But I want to tell you this. God cares. He's compassionate. He really cares. And he wants you to know he'll restore what's been lost. You don't have to wallow in it. You can grieve it. You can feel sad over it. But don't stay in it. Get up and move forward. God will restore what the locusts have eaten in your life if you'll just trust him. So he responds to the broken and contrite heart. He restores that which has been lost by the locusts. And then finally, God reveals his plan for the end of time and how he reconciles what his plan is to show that he is both perfect in his loving, loving kindness and perfect in his justice. That which we have trouble reconciling in our mind is not a problem for God at all, and he wants us to know. So Joel talks about the future. He gives us prophecy about what's to come. Now, it's interesting, when I first got to Summit, we did a survey of what are some of the sermons y'all would like to hear? And, and one of the top five requests, believe it or not, was end times prophecy, uh, what the theologians call eschatology, what's gonna happen in the future and future things. So we get to go there this morning. Obviously, we can't go very far because I've only got a little bit left, but, but let me kind of do a, a flyby for you here of, of the two things that Joel talks about, about end times prophecy, and to try to put it in context a little bit. The two things that Joel highlights, the first one is found in Joel chapter two, verses 28 and 29. He says, afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, hopefully, if you've been reading your New Testament, this sounds familiar. Because in Acts chapter two, Peter quotes Joel to explain a phenomenon that happened and is recorded in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the early church was gathered together in the upper room. And on the day of Pentecost, God sent his Holy Spirit and he filled the believers with the Holy Spirit to begin the age of the church. And Joel tells us this is going to happen. Now, what's interesting, Moses had prayed for this long time earlier. In Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, Oh, that all of your people would be prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now, watch this. 
In the Old Testament, what's interesting, the Holy Spirit would come upon a leader for a specific task, but then he would leave. And he only came upon a select few. And Moses said, oh, that he'd come on everybody. Well, Joel tells us it's going to be even much better than that. He just doesn't come upon you. He will live in you. If you're a believer, Ephesians 1.13 says, the moment you put your faith in Christ, God gives you the Holy Spirit. He comes in you. He regenerates you. That's why we say you're born again. He makes you a new person. And now he lives in you. And as you learn to walk in his power, he empowers you to live the life God is calling you to live. And for us collectively as the people of God to have the impact to bring the kingdom of God to this earth by the power of his spirit. Isn't that exciting? That's where we live. Joel told us it's going to happen. And that's exactly what we're experiencing today. How exciting is that? There's a second prophecy that Joel gives. He gives a prophecy about the distant future. He looks and sees to the end of time. In Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31, and then all of chapter 3, it describes the ultimate day of the Lord, where God judges the nations and he sets all things to rights. Listen to verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Literally, creation itself is going to be shaken. Now, I'm going to give you an, uh, a little uh, diagram here that I think will be helpful to us as we talk a little bit about prophecy. And these are kind of the different chapters, if you will, in the unfolding of history as we study the scripture. We have creation, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and then the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. And then we have the birth of the nation Israel, as he calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And this is where Joel lives. He lives in this period of time of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And then we have Jesus, and as you see Joel kind of living in that Israel uh, chapter, what he's doing when he's prophesying is as if he has arrows, and he's shooting an arrow up over the horizon. That's why I kind of drew it as a circle here. And he doesn't really see where the arrow lands in the future. He just knows that sometime in the future, God is going to pour out his spirit. He shoots another arrow. He knows that there's going to be an ultimate final day of judgment. But he doesn't have the whole picture. That's where you bring all the prophets together and all the arrows together, and we can piece together what's happening, as God says, in terms of prophecy for the future. So when we get to end times and you study the scriptures, there's a number two or three or four major themes. One of them is called the millennium. Now, stay with me because I'm going to kind of do a flyby here. But in Revelation, it talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ. What makes prophecy maddening is no one has the exact complete picture. We're all kind of trying to put the jigsaw puzzle together, right? Um, so some people believe that that's figurative language. Most people believe that that's an actual time that's coming where Jesus, after his judgment, is going to bring um, his reign to this earth for a thousand-year period. There's also this thing spoken about in Revelation called the Great Tribulation. It's seven years leading up to the day of the Lord, the final seven years. The first three and a half are time of peace. The last three and a half are God pouring out uh, different wrath, bowls of wrath and trumpets of wrath that are hitting the earth during this 
horrific time of God's judgment on the earth. Then theologians debate. Paul talks about the church being taken up into heaven. They've given it the name called the rapture. So does that happen pre-tribulation? Does that happen mid-tribulation? Does that happen post-tribulation? I subscribe to pan-tribulation. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to pan out for you in the end. <laughs> now, in, in, in all seriousness, I have my convictions about these things, and I'd love to talk to you about it. All right, and so I have friends on different sides of some of these issues than, uh, than where I'm at, but, but we all agree on this. There's no debate on this. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he's going to judge the nations. There's going to be an ultimate and terrifying final day of the Lord where he sets all things to right and perfect in his justice and perfect in his judgment. He will judge the nations. In verse 32, I love how Joel summarizes this prophecy. It just reflects and captures the heart of God. In the midst of all of this judgment that's coming, listen to what he says. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great? As God is orchestrating the unfolding of history and his justice is coming, the demands that all will be held accountable and all will be set to right. God will have his final day in court. He uses that as an opportunity to call people, to call upon him. God has appointed that day in the future for a reason because right now he's giving time to respond to his gracious invitation of his love to avoid this judgment. And God's plan all along from beginning to end, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back to the sacrifice of what Christ has done. But that's God's plan for resolving this conflict in his, what well, looks like a conflict to us in his character of his perfect justice and his perfect love. It's simple, really. God in his great love took your and my penalty. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live. He did not sin. He was perfect. Therefore, he did not deserve to die. But he willingly, in the most unimaginable act of love, gave himself to take our place. And there on the cross, it says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. God put all the sin of the world on Christ, and he poured out every last ounce of his furious wrath. He didn't leave one thing back. Not one iota was held back. He didn't wink an eye at sin. Jesus paid it all. Here's the cool part. That sin that he bore and the penalty thereof was not strong enough to keep him in the grave. He rose from the dead and he defeated for all time our mortal enemies of sin and death forever. And so because of Christ, we too can have life eternal. We can have forgiveness. We can have a new start. We can be born again, regenerated as new people of God. Forget the old, lean into the new. Jesus paid it all. Isn't that great? Joel says, call on the name of the Lord. That's what we need to do. So the application of Joel is real simple. God's invitation for us this morning is to call on the name of the Lord. For some, this may be the first time where you need to cry out to God and lament of how you have been running from him and just give your heart to him like I did in that dorm room so many years ago. Maybe you've drifted from God. Maybe, maybe you know God's trying to get your attention. You don't have to come to the end of yourself with your face down in the mud. Today, 
He's gracious and compassionate. He's inviting you. Turn back to him. He understands. He'll come and help you. Perhaps you're in a season where the locusts are there and you're just at the end of your rope. You don't know what to do. You're scared. And you're looking at what's going on in your life and you don't understand. Call upon the name of the Lord. He'll show himself gracious and compassionate to you. I know he will. He does every time. How do I know this? I know it's true from the scriptures, but I've been doing this now for almost 40 years. You can trust God. You can trust the Lord. I know with all of my being, he will respond to a broken and contrite heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures and in particular, Lord, for what we learned from Joel. And thank you, Lord, for the gracious invitation that you long for us to be in relationship with you. You long for us, Lord, to come to you, to truly experience your good and gracious and kind love. And so my prayer for everybody that's here today, wherever they are in that journey, that they would respond to the prompting of your Holy Spirit even right now in this moment and they would call upon you, that they would open up their hearts and to the best of their abilities say, Lord, help I need you, Lord. Show yourself strong to me. Show yourself kind to me. Show yourself gracious to me as I turn my heart to you. Lord, I'm excited that we get to do this. And I can't wait to see how you answer that prayer in each of these persons' lives, Lord. I pray this in the powerful and arisen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.